Thin Air is an independently produced podcast created by Daniel Calderon and Jordan Sims. For more information about us, check out our website at thinairpodcast.com. There you'll find detailed blogs on the cases we cover, our contact information, social media, donation pages, and much, much more. That is thinairpodcast.com. We'd also greatly appreciate if you could take a few moments and rate and review us on iTunes. This will help our podcast become visible to an even wider audience. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash thinair. You will love getting fresh ingredients delivered right to your door. Redeem your three free meal offer today by going to blueapron.com slash thinair. On our last episode of Thin Air, I examined the life and disappearance of Cameron Remmer, a 29-year-old man who disappeared in San Francisco in the early morning hours of October 7, 2011. I spent a majority of the last episode exploring the complicated life that Cameron had, including his struggle with mental illness. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest going back, giving it a listen, and then resuming this one. The context it provides will be invaluable in understanding the complexity of this case. Cameron Remmer, who had recently gone into business with a friend of his named Zach, was to take close to $40,000 to San Francisco to fill an order of THC oil cartridges for vaporizer pens. Medical marijuana had recently been legalized in California, and both he and his business partner wanted to be pioneers in the medical marijuana industry. One product that tended to be the most popular were small cartridges of THC oil that can be used in vaporizer pens, small pen-shaped devices that use oil instead of herb, and as a result are less harsh on your lungs, produce a better high, and are discreet enough to be used virtually anywhere. Cameron's mission was to go to California to purchase about 700 THC oil cartridges for around $40,000. And so Cameron asked his live-in girlfriend at the time, Brittany, to book him a ticket to San Francisco leaving on Wednesday, September 28th and returning on Friday, September 30th. The plan when Cameron returned on Friday was for him, his father Bill, and his girlfriend Brittany to all drive to Arizona to visit his friend Willie, another entrepreneur in the medical marijuana industry. Cameron didn't return that Friday. In fact, he continued to delay his return date all the way until October 6th, the day he vanishes and is never heard from again. I desperately wanted to piece together the events that took place the week that Cameron vanished. And so I started with the San Francisco Police Department. Valerie, Cameron's mother, spoke to me at length during our last episode about trying to work with SFPD and how little effort she felt they were putting into her son's case. Over the years, Cameron's case has changed hands multiple times. And each time a new investigator is assigned, the case becomes more and more cold. I began searching for the original investigator, Joe Carroll, who retired before he could see Cameron's case solved. I wanted to know if he would be willing to share with me any information he could 
about what he knew of Cameron's actions the week before he went missing. Unfortunately, my search ended quickly when I discovered an obituary from December 2nd, 2015 for Joseph S. Carroll, a 30-year veteran of the SFPD. After Joe, the case changed hands two more times before landing on the desk of Sylvia Morrow, who is listed as the current investigator on the case according to the NamUs website. Confused and desperate for answers, I decided to call them myself. SFPD Media Officer Rueka, how may I help you? Hi, yeah, um, my name is Daniel, and I am the host of a true crime podcast that focuses on missing persons cases. And I was looking mm-hmm. for somebody to speak to, um, if possible, in the department regarding the case of Cameron Remmer. Cameron, C A M E R O N, is that correct? And then what's the last name? How do you spell the last name? Uh, Remmer, R E M M E R. And I have the case number, too, if that's helpful. What's the case number? One, one, the officer zero. I spoke with told me he was going to find out who the current investigator is, and he was going to call me back. So I waited. When he called me back, it was virtually what I expected and what I've seen so many times when we reach out to law enforcement about unsolved missing persons cases. So um, I got a hold of the uh, inspector that's dealing with it. So this case, all our cases for missing persons remain open um, until the person's found. And so the case is still active, still open. Um, Someone is actively working on the case. You know, in missing persons cases, just in lots of other cases, we like to keep the information close because um, then people, you know, close to our chest, just because we don't want to, if we start sharing information that we think is is maybe relevant to the case and all of a sudden someone comes up with this information and they're going to say oh you know i have this information because the police told me well that doesn't help our that doesn't help our case at all we 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 can't share that information um just because that that could be very that you know very important in and trying to find um, somebody. And so, uh, you know, rarely do we set out, give out information, set out any crumbs, if you will, because people will take those crumbs and create something that may not even be there. Does that make sense? While I definitely understand that it is important for some information to remain private during open investigations, I can't help but wonder how open some of these open investigations really are. For example, after multiple email exchanges between myself and SFPD inquiring about the contents of Cameron's luggage, which still remains in SFPD's possession, they told me they could not comment since Cameron was still missing and therefore his case is an open investigation. But how open is a six-year-old case with no active lead investigator? Sylvia Morrow, the woman listed online as the lead investigator in Cameron's case, has too retired. Feeling stonewalled by SFPD, and knowing they weren't going to share much with me anyways, I began working through Cameron's call logs and the people who seemed to be the most important in his life. There was Adrian, the woman in San Francisco he spent virtually every day with until his disappearance. 
Caleb, a business associate in San Francisco who was helping Cameron purchase the vape cartridges, Brittany, his live-in girlfriend back in San Diego, and Zach, his business partner, someone who was depending greatly on Cameron to complete this purchase and return to Southern California. I started with Adrian. She seemed to be the one spending the most time with Cameron in San Francisco. So I picked up the phone and called her number, hoping that after more than five years, it still remained the same. Hello, is this Adrian? Yeah, this is her. Hi, Adrian. As I explained to her who I was, she readily agreed to a phone interview and seemed eager and willing to help in any way she could. How did you meet Cameron? So I met him, I was at the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival with one of my friends. And uh, I guess we just kind of caught eyes and, you know, we hung out, went to a couple bars and... Just hit it off really well. He was super friendly, really outgoing. Um, So yeah, we just met there. Was he with anybody at the time? No, he was just on his own. Um, Yeah, he he always had his backpack with him, and he always had his GoPro with him. I know that, like, because he was like filming everything. For a particular reason, or? I I have no idea. I, well, he, you know what? He, one thing he was doing is he would talk to people that were like living on the street, and he would like to film the, his conversations and interactions with them. So I knew he did that, and like he was just filming other things like throughout the city. I guess more like touristy style and and like graffiti, I think. And what was he talking to the homeless people about? Um. I think it was like more about art. He really liked, uh, like, he was talking about like art with them. Like, he would talk more to the people who had, like, did a painting or a drawing or something, and they were showing it. But um, other than that, I can't really remember like a full-blown conversation because I just thought it was a little strange because you just don't normally do that. <laughs> from what I gathered from the show that I watched, is Adrian had appeared on an investigative discovery show about Cameron called last seen alive it was one of the reasons i had hoped that she would be willing to speak to me it seems like you guys sort of hung out every day after that yeah for like a week we hung out um we were constantly meeting up i would have to leave him at first some parts of the day because i'd have to go to work and then he would contact me but the thing was is that he kept telling me that he was going back to san diego and then he would call me that evening and be like, I didn't go. And he'd be in another hotel or like in a different neighborhood of San Francisco. So I'd go meet him. But it was like, it was the same thing. Like he was like, oh, I'm going to go back or I'm going to go to Hawaii or something. Why did he keep staying? I'm not sure, really. Um, was it because of you? Like, did he want to spend more time with you? Well, I knew he had, he said he had some business with some other like, friends I guess he had around the Bay Area from what I remember I think he had a friend up in Sebastopol or something like that and he knew he had to go talk to him he was talking about doing like some sort of like medical marijuana thing or like starting a business along those lines and I know he went to a lot of dispensaries 
around the bay. So I'm not, I, we did meet up with one friend, but I can't remember his name. It's slipping my mind. What did you do for fun in the city? You just sort of like hung out and went around, you show them around and. Yeah, we just had a good time. We did a lot of drinking. Um, he went to the banks like different banks to close out his accounts and pulled out like all the cash. And another thing, he he kept going into the banks and asking for all their like the half dollars. So, and then he was telling me about them. He was like, he would point out and he would show me which ones that are after a certain date still had copper in them or something. So they're worth more than what they're valued as. So I, you know, didn't know why he knew that, but you know. In the show, you also mentioned that one of the things that he was doing that was sort of strange was buying sunglasses and giving them out randomly or? Yeah, he had like a a lot of, he would buy a lot of something. Because I remember like the shoes, he had a lot of shoes, sunglasses. Um, I know he was like just buying clothes as each day went on to just put on. It was curious, but I mean... I don't know what his deal is or what he likes. I mean, to me, I thought it was strange just pulling out all that money and then, you know, just staying at different hotels every night. And it was a little off, but I'm not to judge. Do you remember him staying at the Fairmont? Yeah, I went to, I think I met him there, I think one night, but like, it was starting to get a little tax, like tasking on me to like go out every night. And like, so at one point I was like, okay, listen, I, I can't meet up with you. And like, and then he would, he was fine. He was perfectly like normal and everything. And then it got to a point where it was like, okay, I like, I can't come meet up with you. Like I just saw you yesterday. And then he would start getting a little more demanding. He's like, you're going to make it happen. You're going to come out. And I was like, whatever. And I did, you know, I'll go for a drink, but. Was the, was it demanding in like a playful way or what did it seem more serious in tone? It seemed a little more serious in tone, but I just figured, well, maybe he just was drinking a little bit. And I don't know. Like, I mean, I didn't have any issues with him. He was totally sweet. He, you know, was such a gentleman. Um, he had a lot of knowledge and stuff. So like, I didn't feel like forced or threatened or anything like that. He so. Yeah, he was a really nice guy. Besides the talk about Hawaii, had he discussed any kind of future plans with you while you were there? Like, maybe what he was intending to do next? I mean, he just talks more about going to San Diego and then going to Hawaii. I know he wanted to do some business in the marijuana business, but um, other than that, I didn't, like, because I, I don't know much about it, so I wouldn't pry on somebody else's ventures. But yeah, like, no, I mean, he even, like, we've exchanged, we obviously exchanged numbers, and he was like, yeah, you know, come down to San Diego, like, so it was like, he kind of invited me to come and visit him, so to me, it's just kind of strange that, like, he would just disappear. Right. So, like, he's making future plans, and usually, if you're intending to disappear, you wouldn't really be making those plans, right? Hmm. Exactly. Did he ever express any fear about his situation? Because it seems like you guys were having a good time together. Yeah, no, everything was fine. Everything was dandy. Like, 
it, it just seems like he had, you know, we, we had our fun, but he also had business to do. He kept telling me like he has business to take care of, but other than that, I don't really know much about his business other than wanting to grow or something like that or sell. Or... How did you end up finding out that Cameron had gone missing? So uh, the first night we met, we I went to a local bar where my friend works at Dirty Nellie's and she met him for just that one night. And like a couple weeks later, like I've tried calling him or texting him and I never got any response. So I just kind of gave up. And then she contacted me and was like, your friend went missing. And I was like, what are you talking about? So then I tried to instant message the sister as soon as I saw that. And like, I guess the sister contacted me like right when I was writing that message. So uh, however, how many days in between when I got contacted. But yeah, I, I tried to reach out as soon as possible to say that I was with him. So, so how did your friend find out? Did she just see it on the news oh, or, or? On, on through Facebook. It was like, it was a crazy avalanche of how she, I guess there was a missing picture and like it floated around on Facebook and people kept reposting it. And then that's when she told me and showed me. So. Wow. Yeah. What was that like for you in that moment? That, you know, it, it was kind of like a shock. But then it was like, well, maybe he's just up in Hawaii or maybe didn't tell his family or something. But then once I started, it started getting a lot more serious and like weeks go by and I had to talk to detectives. And then I find out that he had like a bipolar disorder or something. And um, yeah, it was, that was that was a trip for me it was because I would have never pictured him as having like some sort of like personality or behavioral problems he was just so like he seemed so normal to me and then they were saying that he might be off his medication and all this stuff and I was like well I have no idea I didn't see him take anything and so he didn't seem like somebody who had mental instability and was off their medication to you no he didn't seem like I mean granted when it got closer to the end and when he started being a little more demanding like I guess that could have been a point where it was like, okay, maybe there is something wrong, but I, I didn't make that connection until they told me that there was something. So one thing that I, I try and keep in mind, like open-minded because what they did say about him being like, you know, having a behavioral issue or a mental issue, it's like every day when I'm in San Francisco, I constantly look at the people that live on the streets and I'm thinking, well, maybe he just forgot who he was. So I'm always keeping an eye out for him. And, you know, because, you know, he was so fascinated by Occupy and that's when Occupy was going on. And I've, I've heard this, too, from his parents, because there's one side of the story, which is like the really scary side of the story in which he's operating in, you know, some dark drug world and then there's the other side of the story where he has a mental illness or bipolar disorder and was interested in things like the occupy movement like you mentioned and and homelessness so his parents believe that he is homeless would you agree with that do you believe he's more likely to be alive in this case 
I, I do. I do believe in it because, I mean, if you walk down the streets of San Francisco and you see the amount of homeless people, they don't even know their own names because they have their own mental problems. So it's like those people had to, you know, start somewhere to have be like that. And like those are all somebody's children. So I can only imagine that Cameron would be one of those people as well, you know, maybe just like look, looking more closely to the people that are sleeping on the streets or, you know, any chance I get that I think that it might be him, I'll, you know, I'll cross the street and I'll take a closer look. But So still to this day, five, six years later, you're still thinking and looking for him when you go out? Absolutely. Like, I, I definitely think it's a possibility that he could still be out and he's just lost right now. So, and I just think about all the lost souls that are like roaming the streets and, you know, they... Any one of those people can be a missing person that nobody has found yet. I remember one time in particular, when I was living in Oakland at the time, I saw a guy that I could have sworn it was him. And so I, I was getting off the freeway and I was finding my way to get back onto the freeway so I could take the off ramp because they were panhandlers. But um, once I got a closer look, the guy that didn't look as close, like it looks similarities, like maybe the guy was a little too tall to be Cameron's height. And, I mean, you know, like, I will always keep an eye out. I mean, I still have a picture of Cameron. And, like, of course, there's, you know, on Facebook, there's pictures of him. And, like, I just have to keep in mind, like, five years, you have to add a little bit of wear and tear to the face. And always keeping my eyes open. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for talking to me and, and taking that time out. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of what Adrian described, how Cameron interacted with homeless people and his strange behavior, is stuff I had heard before from his mom Valerie and his friend Leah in our last episode. One of the things I wanted clarity on was the various bank accounts I had heard that Cameron was going around and closing during his stay in San Francisco, which included, according to his childhood friend Leah, a series of safe deposit boxes. Why so many different accounts? And what was in the safe deposit boxes? I asked Cameron's mom, Valerie, what she remembered and if she was able to find out what was in any of these safe deposit boxes. We kept getting something from Wells Fargo. So we, you know, I don't, it sounds weird, but I don't like to open his mail. If it's, you know, it's something I, we just were kind of holding things and then, then that was the first year. And anyway, um, we got another letter about two months ago uh, from Wells Fargo again saying that he has a safe deposit box. So we called them and we had to go down to the uh, Encinitas Wells Fargo branch. They wanted to pay us to pay $280 to have the contents of the box. And, and we wanted to know what was in the box. So she said, basically, it's some gum wrappers, a couple pairs of sunglasses, and a, an empty um a DVD or CD box. So um, the the thing is, I was going to pay the money because I wanted it because it's something that he had, and not that it was important to him, but it he touched it. I can't explain that, but um, 
uh, I decided that you know our money's really tight right now, and that, and then my husband and I felt. I, I asked, I asked my, I asked one of my sons at college. He goes, Chris, um, if I should go ahead and do that, and they said, no, that just sounds, just don't do it, and um, so we didn't. I continued to push through the other people on his call logs when I came across a number that didn't seem to quite fit with the rest. At 1.51 p.m. on October 6th, the day before Cameron goes missing, he received a call from a Boston cell phone number pinging off a San Francisco cell tower. The call is listed as lasting for one minute, which means the call itself lasted a minute or less, or it went to his voicemail. I had never heard of Cameron being in contact with anyone from the East Coast, so I did a reverse number search, and when I discovered who the number belonged to, it only deepened the mystery of Cameron's disappearance. After the break, who does the number belong to? And Jordan tracks down Zach, Cameron's friend and business partner. For the past few weeks, I've been receiving my weekly Blue Apron subscription and cooking meals that make me feel like I actually know what I'm doing in the kitchen. Each week, I receive a refrigerated box at my front door with the exact amount of ingredients required for each recipe. Not only does this precision make my life easier, but it reduces the amount of waste produced by buying more food than you actually need. When I cook, I feel good knowing that Blue Apron supports a sustainable food system setting the highest standards for their ingredients. They partner with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers from across the United States. In addition to its high-quality ingredients, Blue Apron's user-friendly website and app make it easy and convenient to see future orders, reschedule your deliveries if needed, and access cooking tips and suggestions tailored precisely for what you ordered. Instead of going out to eat or shopping for food at high-end grocery stores, you can now spend under $10 per person for a healthy, delicious meal that you cooked fresh at home. If you want to try Blue Apron and get your first three meals for free, go to blueapron.com thinair and you'll get an entire week's worth of food for free. Not to mention that Blue Apron always has free shipping, so there's no hidden charges. Thanks again to Blue Apron for supporting this podcast. To check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, the website again is blueapron.com slash thin air. Now, back to the story. The afternoon prior to Cameron's disappearance, he received an incoming call from a Boston cell phone number pinging off a San Francisco cell tower. Curious as to the owner of this number, I did a reverse number search, and it came up with the name Lisa Randall. Lisa Randall is a public figure in the realm of science. She's a theoretical physicist and professor at Harvard University. She worked on projects like the God Particle, has written numerous books on physics, and given various lectures and talks around the country. 
And on October 6th, she was calling Cameron for reasons nobody knows. Despite my multiple attempts to reach out to Lisa Randall for comment, she never responded, which clearly leaves me with more questions than it does answers. Without contact from Lisa, I can only wonder why it was she was calling Cameron the day before he disappeared. From my research, I did confirm that Lisa Randall was in San Francisco during the time of Cameron's disappearance. She had given a lecture nearby at 7 p.m. on October 5th, and given her celebrity, I can only wonder if she too had been a guest at the Fairmont Hotel, the last place Cameron was seen alive. Lisa Randall isn't the only person who we reached out to that we never heard back from. We messaged Brittany, Cameron's live-in girlfriend at the time, the one who booked Cameron's flight to San Francisco and the person to alert his parents that Cameron might be missing, and we never heard back from her either. We contacted Caleb, Cameron's business contact in San Francisco, the guy that had dinner with Cameron the night he disappeared. He responded, but wouldn't agree to speak with us on the record about Cameron's disappearance. He gave us the same story he's given time and time again about the night. They had dinner, Cameron seemed manic, he was wearing two different shoes, he got angry when Caleb told him he didn't want to go back with him to Arizona, and he walked out of the restaurant refusing a taxi ride back to the Fairmont Hotel. We also contacted Zach, Cameron's business partner in San Diego, and he did agree to an interview. He, like Adrian, seemed willing to help us understand more about Cameron and his situation prior to leaving San Francisco. Jordan was able to speak to Zach about his relationship with Cameron and the circumstances of his disappearance. Here's Jordan. When and how did you meet Cameron? I met Cameron, he was a vendor at first to my shop in Oceanside that was a medical marijuana dispensary. Um, he vended us product, mainly in the industry, we would call it flour. So to the rest of the world, that'd probably just be called weed. Uh, so what does the vendor do? Does he provide you with marijuana? Yeah, he provided um, products to our store. The store originally was owned by two twin brothers, Geronimo and Squally. Those aren't their real names, those are just the names they went by. So they ran the shop into the ground and I took ownership or an ownership role in the shop after they ran it into the ground. I invested to bring the shop back to life with certain stipulations that I would control the, the vendor relationships and the money. And so that's when I took ownership of the shop and Cameron came along maybe a month or two later as a vendor and we established a good relationship and the cartridges the the vape pens those were very new to the market in fact he was the only one in our area with that product period not not just oceanside but almost the entire southern california area so we i sat down with him and um we ended up coming to an agreement to give him 26% of the shop. 
and then I held 25%. So between the two of us, we would hold 51% uh, controlling interest in the shop from a business standpoint. So he came in and, and when we came to that agreement, um, because he had such a good line of products and he had the, the, the highly sought after, I mean, those things at first, you couldn't even keep those things inside a store. They, they were gone almost instantly. Why is that? Is it because it was like, is it because it was like a new product or like, why were they so popular? Brand new. It's discreet. It's, I mean, you, you basically can use that thing anywhere without anybody knowing. And this was before even, you know, nic- nicotine vaporizers weren't even popular at this point. So were you and Cameron friends? Can you kind of describe like what your relationship was like outside of business? Outside of business? I mean, while we were business partners, we still, we at that point in time, once we became business partners, we hung out almost every day, did a lot of different things, you know, concerts, music, or sporting events. Uh, Brittany, his girlfriend at the time, would normally be there. Um, some of the other people that worked with us and, and whatnot at the shop would hang around. You know, he was he was a good guy. What is his personality like? What is he like as a person? He's outgoing. He's friendly. Everybody seemed to love him, no matter uh, who met him. He'd talk to everybody, get along with everybody. You know, we'd, we'd do things like we went uh, to Dick's Sporting Goods one time and spent about $3,000 on you know, jerseys and all sorts of stuff and just walked around downtown before a concert, passing it out to homeless people. I've heard that he does that. That's sort of a, he, he gives things away to the homeless often, or he, at least more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Did that, you know, numerous times we go to the concert and we gave every security guard at the concert, you know, Tony Gwynn throwback jerseys, just different things like that. He's a very generous person. When we came down to it, he was, Definitely a generous person. Um, he had his issues, but those stemmed more from from what I was under the understanding was from the bipolar disorder. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Did you ever, I mean, did you know about his mental health problems or did you see any strange behavior from him? At first, I did not. Um, it, it, it really, once the twins were kind of cut out of the operation side of things, I ran the day-to-day every day, seven days a week. Um, And it probably was a couple months into it when he disappeared for about three days. And so for me, I'm concerned because we had procedures. And when those procedures involved a fairly significant amount of money changing hands between myself and him from each day's uh, sales. So for him to not show up and have no contact was a little weird. When did but, that happen? You know, was this before he went missing in 2000? This was before. Okay. When yeah, did that this happen? Was, this was probably a couple months before. Um, he showed, he, he resurfaced back at his house. He had built kind of like a shrine um, in his home. He had an air duct that was going down the stairs and coming out of the air duct was a line of different Mexican beers up to a pyramid built out of the uh, vape pen cartridges and actual vape pens themselves. And, you know, it was a, well, it was a little off when we reconnected and 
you know, just said, hey, he had some, some dreams and this was the result of that. Had some. So after that, I, I learned a little bit more about the situation and the condition that he was in and, and that he did take meds. So, you know, we had before that it all happened, we would go out to the bars and party a lot and, and do things that probably, you know, weren't good for his health that I don't even know if Brittany knew about it, to be honest, until that point either. I think that was when a lot of us that were, you know, new to the situation found out. Did he ever explain where he was? Did he, like, did he say, oh, I was here? No, no explanation? He didn't. At that point, he didn't even remember. So that was, that was the one time. But after that, everything seemed fine. I mean, it went back to normal. After that happened, a couple weeks later is when he he went up to San Francisco. So the plan was for him to go up there, get the product, um, the vape pens and, and the cartridges, because we had already set up some pretty sizable orders down in Southern California. And we we're going to roll right into that. And so that's what he was up in San Francisco doing. And then he was going to come back and we were going to, give the twins their due from the shop itself. And me and him, were going to go about our ways and switch focus to that. I see. Okay. So when he's in San Francisco, uh, we, we spoke to Adrian, who was a, a woman he was hanging out with in San Francisco. And he said that he would go to banks and pull out money. So like when he went to San Francisco, did he go with vape pens hoping to sell them? Like, I guess I just were like, no, he went with, he went with money. He went with the majority, I want to say about, on our end, probably 90% of our cash from the shop that was left over and then what we were stockpiling. He went with that to go buy the vape pens. So he went up with a significant amount of cash. How much money did he have with him? Uh, at this point, uh, if I remember correctly, it's $37,000. Do you talk to him while he's in San Francisco? Does he sound normal or is everything okay? I talked to him, um, I think October 3rd was the last time I talked to him. And every day I talked to him, he seemed great. I mean, he on September 30th, it was, you know, I need a couple of days. I went and paid his rent for him because um, he, he just wanted a couple more days up there and he everything was good. He got all the product and... We were getting ready to rock and roll. And when I talked to him, the last day I talked to him, everything seemed fine. And that was the last conversation we ever had. So nothing seemed out of place or like he was acting strange? Nothing. Yeah, nothing ever seemed out of place or odd. So everything was sort of business as usual. It seemed like everything was going according to plan. Yeah. Okay. Everything. Yeah, everything was. So he was staying in a lot of different hotels at the time. Did you know about that or did he explain that at all? Yeah, that's kind of just precautionary with comes with being in that industry it was a much more gray area at that time um you know it's legal but it's it's still a gray area it's it's up to cities and it's it's not legal federally so you you do things like that to protect yourself especially when there's a lot of money and product involved that makes sense because if word starts getting around 
someone knows where you're staying. Yeah. I see. Okay. I mean, I, I feel like it's sort of been described as like a manic move to make changing hotels. But if you're worried about like, it's yeah, it's a little bit, I mean, it, it could be part manic. It could be part, um, just every couple of days. If, if I was to go to Northern California to purchase product, I would never stay in the same place for more than two days. It's just kind of comes with the, the industry. So he goes missing. And then what is the story you hear about? Like, like what happens to the product? Like, what did he have? What had happened on this deal he was supposed to do? So from my knowledge, he had made the purchase, had all the, the cartridges and the pens. Um, so that's why he was needing, you know, cash here and there, because the cash he took up with him was spent on the product. He had the product with him. and And he was just when we spoke, he was going to come back, um, not the next day, but the day after, so the fifth. We spoke on the third. He was supposed to come back the fifth. That what happened to those? Well, first of all, I guess what happened to the money? Had he spent it all then on the vape pen product? Yes, at least from what I'm aware of, he had spent it all on that. And the last I heard, they were still sitting in the evidence locker at SFPD. Okay, so he spends a lot of money getting these vape pens. I think he leaves them in a backpack at the hotel. And then the police department just confiscates them and you there's no way to get them back. I mean, there might have been hoops I could have jumped through and, and, and whatnot. But for the, the immediate time after that, it was more about, okay, he's probably going to show up. I, he's disappeared before. And then after I, you know, after he disappeared that one time, I was, you know, his dad told me a couple of stories and then whatnot of him doing it in the past. So, you know, that's the first thought is he's just disappearing again. He'll come back, he'll resurface in a few days. And, and, and my focus was on what was going on down here and, and dealing with the twins. Cause when he goes missing, then the twins become a bigger issue for me to handle. I see. What did they, what did they do? What was their reaction? I mean, they just, for them, it's like, okay, well, he's gone. What's left, you know, let's split it up. But that wasn't, that just wasn't the case. That wasn't, it wasn't theirs to take. And so it became a issue with me and them and, and them, you know, at one point in my house, threatening me with a, with a knife, was there a point when you kind of realized like maybe Cameron won't show up again? Was there ever that like realization? It was, I mean, it, it came more after they mis-ID'd somebody as him. We, we got the news that they had found him and, and, you know, a couple of days later, then it was, it was, that was it. It wasn't him. I mean, at that point it had been a few weeks. It's, it's, in my mind, there's there's all sorts of situations that could have happened. After listening to the first show and learning things that even I didn't know about it, you know, there could have been other people in the picture that nobody knows about. What happens to him when he gets into that state? There's so many different possibilities that until something's concrete, you know, no, I don't think anybody will ever really know. Did anyone in this story, like ever, even the police, uh, ever treat you like suspiciously or like you were involved in any way? The only person that ever did was his mom. And she never did it 
she never did it in a way to, you know, she never said it to me personally, but um, I think it was maybe a year later, I Googled my name and I found a blog post she had written talking about me, um, you know, pretty adamantly thinking that I had something to do with it. So I actually sent her an email and told her to take it down and remove it because that's not the case and I don't need that, you know, that kind of thing out there on the internet for everybody to read that, you know, she thinks I'm involved with her son who is my friend, who is my business partner, who me and him had big plans together. You know, just, it, it was a lot of money invested and then not only that in the money at the end of the day the money is never what will matter you know it's just, it was about him and him coming home the money can always be made I said at the beginning of part one this case on the outset seems obvious a man goes to California to buy some product for his marijuana business and disappears. But the more I research, the more people I talk to, the more I realize there actually isn't anything obvious about this case at all. I think it's tempting to believe, as Zach does, that perhaps Cameron's fate was determined by the business he was a part of. But to me, the evidence doesn't suggest that. After all, he had already made the purchase. He already had the product. And there would have been no reason to harm Cameron after the transaction had already taken place. After all, the product still remains in police custody to this day. What I believe is more plausible is that something happened at the Fairmont that night that we don't know about. Valerie, Cameron's mom, has tried to get answers from the hotel, but has been met with a fair amount of resistance. And the reason I even bring it up is because of the huge, huge fight later. They, they fired the head of security during the time we were, I was just talking with them and Joe Carroll was talking with them. And then they rehired a new person in security and they would never, ever release the video. And they said it was to protect their patrons. Even like the police couldn't get an order for them to release the footage or nothing? Nope. And the, and the best chance we have, anybody has, of finding somebody is their video right after a, an abduction or if whatever happened, if you got hit in the head or got in a fight with security outside. I, I don't know. Without video surveillance, we are again only left up to speculation about what happened that night that Cameron was kicked out of the Tonga bar. Had he gotten into a fight with security, received a head injury, become disoriented and then lost on the streets of San Francisco? Given Cameron's history of rage and traumatic head injuries, it's not outside the realm of possibility. Or did Cameron leave on his own free will, tempted to the streets by the romanticism of the Occupy movement?